Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about a political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys spend your weekend spending time with your family and friends. Don't know about you, but it was really good weather where I am at, so hopefully it was the same for you guys as well. Uh, there's a little bit of tennis news that we can get into for today, but in terms of news outside of tennis, we can obviously get into uh, Rand Paul's wife buying Gilead stock, Kevin Hart and Don Cheadle as well, the situations between those two individuals, the Taliban takeover of Kabul and what that says about the Afghanistan war. And obviously for tennis, we'll obviously be talking about the Rogers Cup uh, John Isner versus Medvedev, Daniel Medvedev for the semifinal, as well as Caroline Georgie versus Plushkova, um, Opelka versus Tsitsipas for the Rogers Cup semifinal, and Daniel Medvedev, Riley Opelka for the final, as well as my weekly pick, uh, which will not be that much of a surprise if you know who I am and if you know what my taste buds are. But where we'll start, what we'll start off for today is obviously Daniel Medvedev versus Riley Opelka for the Rogers Cup final. So if you guys didn't watch, Daniil Medvedev beat Riley Opelka 6-4, 6-3 in straight sets. Great, great match. I really enjoyed it. And this is how Daniil Medvedev was able to beat Riley Opelka for the Rogers Cup final. Medvedev was amazing throughout this entire runtime of this match. From the get-go, it felt like he had some type of, type of a pulse against Riley Opelka. He kind of knew heading to this match, where his strong suits were and where his weaknesses were. And it really showed during this match. And one of the best things about Medvedev, not only in this match, but more importantly throughout his career, was his passing shots, or are his passing shots. And he was able to commit to it in this match. When it was 2-all, 30-40, Medvedev was ahead of Opelka. Opelka was serving. Opelka does a serve, goes to the net for a volley. And Medvedev hits an absolute firecracker of a return serve as he gets the point and breaks to make a 3-2 on changeover. That was a microcosm as to what we knew about Medvedev and what we can expect from Medvedev going forward in this match. And that really set the tone for Medvedev when it came to his overall strengths. And that is something that Medvedev is amazing at and what we've seen glimpses of earlier and previously in those previous matches that we've seen leading up to this Rogers Cup final and you know there were multiple times where in this match Opelka tried to get to the net but he could never be able to get to that net he was never able to you know really succeed at isolating Medvedev by having a drop shot or a volley or a slam that can go his way and, you know, there were times in this match where it, it did feel like Medvedev had that upper hand, where even if Opelka was near the net, more often times than not, you could see Medvedev hit a great passing shot and, and really sort of stick it to Opelka. And again, I'm not, you know, trying to diss Opelka, Riley Opelka. Obviously, he's a great player. Uh, hopefully, it's not like that. But, you know, I mean, Medvedev, even when it came to baseline play, I mean, Medvedev was just cool as a cucumber near the baseline. And Riley Opelka, while he did have some shots were, that were great and were amazing, and he definitely did have winners in this match, it, there, it, did, it did feel like there would be a lot more unforced errors for Riley Opelka than, say, Daniil Medvedev because of the fact that Medvedev was just able to overpower him near the baseline as well. And, you know, when he gets to the, the errors, 
I mean, Ryan Lopelka had a lot of errors, both forced and unforced. And that definitely set the tone for the entire rest of the match because of the fact that Daniil Medvedev was just able to be more consistent and follow through on his forehands, backhands, and ground strokes that we've accustomed that we've been accustomed to seeing from Daniil Medvedev. You know, so I mean, that was just an amazing, amazing match by the two of them. And at the end of the day, if I had to guess as to, or not guess, but as if I had to sort of summarize as to how Daniil Medvedev won, it's quite simple. It's three things: Ret- uh, passing shots, errors by Opelka, and return serves. Those three were the main were the main reason as to were the main reasons as to why Daniil Medvedev won. And overall, Daniil Medvedev is your 2021 Rogers Cup winner. And I'm I'm excited to see what Daniil Medvedev will do. Not only for the U.S. Open because obviously we've we've known for the past two three years that Daniil Medvedev can bring the goods at the U.S. Open at Queens, but more importantly after the U.S. Open, and just how he's able to respond to these ATP 1000 tournaments, ATP 500 tournaments, and how it's going to help out his career in the long run. So I think this is one of those matches where you watch five years down the road, ten years down the road, and say to yourself, okay, this match really showed the strengths, and more importantly, just how Medvedev can win when the going gets tough. And this is going to be that match where a lot of people will look back at and say, wow, this match was a good indication as to what we could expect from Medvedev going forward. And that's sort of how I'll view this match as well. So yeah, congrats to Daniil Medvedev on the win. And uh, also valiant effort by Riley Opelka as well. You know, I don't think that many people would have that much of an effort uh, given the circumstances to Opelka. And, um, you know, I think these two really had a good match. Even though it was straight sets, we saw... Both of these players' stock rise, like like increasingly, like it's just so, so amazing to see both of these players really grow and develop in ways that we have never really seen before. So, congrats to Neil Daniel Medvedev on the win. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just one of those things where, you know, it's just amazing, you know, being able to see both these players. I mean, Riley Opelka, you know, I mean the fact that he was able to fend off Sitsipas. I mean, that's something that. Um, not many people would have uh, really considered. And um, yeah, I mean, I, he really shocked a lot of people, including myself. I think that's very important to uh, at least um, get into with uh, Opelka, which is just how important, uh, or at least acknowledge uh, for Opelka, is just how important he was in this entire run and just how interesting he is. You know, I, I think Opelka is one of those individuals that is just a very interesting person. And when he's able to succeed, it just helps out tennis in the long run because it brings that star quality. It brings that aspect of the game that's been missing for a long time. And while there are players that, you know, in the past have shown that they're able to connect with fans both on and off the court. I mean, Nick Kyrgios is a perfect example of that. Uh, Opelka, I think, if he's able to be more consistent, if he's able to sort of be in the thick of it in the long run, I think the sky's the limit for this man. And I think that's a very admirable thing. And uh, hopefully we're able to see more Opelka uh, as this next, as these next few slams go on. Obviously, it's the start of the Cincinnati Open, the Western and Southern Open. Some people call it Western and Southern Open. I'll call it Cincinnati Open because I got to rep America. I'm not going to rep a corporation. I'm going to rep America for this. Hopefully, I don't know if Opelka's going to play. He should be playing. 
Um, but I'm rooting for him, man. I'm, I'm really rooting for this man. Um, you know, he's just one of those per- people that is just so likable. I mean, for some reason, you just want to see him win. You just want to see him succeed. And, um, you know, I, I think tennis needs that person. You know, I mean, for a lot of, you know, Nick Kyrgios is, while I like Nick Kyrgios, uh, I'm, I can tell you that he's not the most likable person uh, for fans. Just ask R4 slash tennis. Um, you know, while there are the uh, Novak Djokovic's, which um, I'm, a lot of people love, a lot of people love him. Certain people don't, and those are often the most uh, keen on showing their distrust and dislike for uh, Djokovic. Um, it's always nice to see like Opelka, which can bring an American audience, but more importantly, uh, a universal audience, because I think at this point, uh, we are all just people and we all just value nice play. And I think Federer, Nadal, Djokovic has, have proven that it doesn't really matter what country you're from, it matters your play and just how consistent you are and more importantly, um, how engaged you are in the match. And Opelka is one of those people that can really do both of those two things sufficiently, if not extraordinarily well. So I'm, I'm excited for him, man. He's a very, very interesting dude. Uh, okay, uh, let's get into the WTA final between Camilla Georgi and Carolina Pushkova. So if you guys don't know, Georgi beats Pushkova 6375. Um, and again, I'll just give you a little bit of a rundown as this match or more importantly, the most important play or the most important thing that happened and transpired in this match was simply when Georgie got the break 4-3 uh, in that first set. It really swung momentum for Camilla Georgie, and it never felt like after that, it, it never felt like she would lose in the match. Even when she it was like 5-all, I would say, or like 6-5, and at no point did it feel like she would, she would lose the match. You know, I mean, it was one of those matches where she just had a number on Pushkova, and you know, there are certain times where when you were watching Pushkova where it felt like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and no, no offense to Pushkova. You know, obviously she's a great player. You know, she reached the Wimbledon final. But, you know, I mean, there are several uh, unforced errors, both unforced and er- uh, forced errors by Pushkova that, you know, sort of set the difference between the two of them. And, you know, don't get me wrong. There were errors by Georgie, especially uh, at the back end of that second set. Uh, but more, but it, it did feel like whoever had the least amount of errors was going to win this match, and it happened to be Camilla Georgie. And Camilla Georgie uh, has now won the Rogers Cup, which we've never really been able to see Camilla Georgie be able to do uh, now. So I think Camilla Georgie skipping out on Wimbledon, focusing on more important things, and you know, focusing on because uh, I know she got injured. Um, being able to sort of focus on her injury and understand when she needed time off uh, because of her physical injury, um, I think that was uh, right the right call for Georgie. And, you know, Camilla Georgie was able to win. And, you know, I mean, she's, she's an amazing person near the baseline. I mean, she is amazing. She's not only able to be powerful near the baseline, but more importantly, is, be, is able to be consistent near the baseline. And that's a very, very interesting duo between the two. When you're able to bring power, bring out uh, Cam H for your ground strikes, but more importantly, be more tactical. And, you know, there are very few people where that view this sport as chess. You know, there are very few people that sort of view this in a more like sort of 
defensive way, in a way more tactical way, in a way more uh, is who are way way more anal about the way they view the match and the way they view their ability to compose a point or more importantly construct a point Camilo Giorgi is one of those players that's able to construct a point from the baseline out uh, on the WTA side and when she's able to do it successfully like the Rogers Cup I mean that's just amazing to see now are there times where it does go bad for her totally I mean that French Open that we just saw uh, really showed you know the stark contrast as to what we would as, as to what is to be expected from Georgie. Uh, but overall, this was a nice match by Georgie. And I think this is one of those matches where, you know, it, it's going to be a career changer for Georgie. You know, we've never seen her win the Rogers Cup. We've never seen her win a championship of this caliber before. And I think that being able to do it when the lights shine the brightest and when, you know, everybody's watching you, I think that is something that should be exemplified and something that should be idolized not only on the WTA circuit, but just in tennis in general. And, you know, Camilla Georgie was able to really beat Pliskova by just having a pulse on her from the first serve in. And to be able to beat against Pliskova, you know, a person that, you know, has been to the finals of multiple Grand Slams, and to really succeed and do it in a way that not many people can do uh, to this level, I mean, it's just... It's better late than never for Camilla Georgie. And, you know, obviously, I think this is one of those matches where, you know, she should be happy about it. You know, this is obviously she's won the Rogers Cup, and I'm sure she's going to play. Uh, and I, I'm not so sure if the WTA side plays this Cincinnati Open. I'm not so sure. Uh, but if they do, uh, this just gives her good momentum heading into that, and more importantly, heading into the U.S. Open as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, great match by Georgie. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's just great to see, you know, people that have been in the circuit for pretty long be able to get their just due and get their credit. And to be able to win against the fourth-ranked tennis player as of this moment in time, it's just the cherry on top. Just the cherry on top for Camilla Giorgi. So, and I'm sure the American audience will love her as well uh, for the U.S. Open. You know, I'm sure they are. Uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of Italians in New York. Uh Maybe Cuomo will be there. Who knows? Maybe Andrew Cuomo will be uh, at the uh, at the U.S. Open. Who knows? Uh, honestly, like I was thinking about Andrew Cuomo. I was like, if Andrew Cuomo just stuck, just stuck it out for one more week, all of these accusations will be gone because of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. But uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> just wanted to get that out of there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Camilla Georgie, success for her. Congrats to her on the win uh it's going to be interesting to see what will happen and uh how the u.s open will play out uh because i'm excited man i I was i was not this excited for the u.s open Uh, i'll be quite honest with you you know obviously it's the french open wimbledon and you know i like the u.s open because i just love america i'm american so it's like i love it just because of that uh but i mean it's going to be interesting to see how these young, I, I say up-and-comers, Georgie, Camilla Georgie is like 29, or 27, 29, I think. Uh, Medvedev is like 24, 25, uh, 23, 24, 25, somewhere around that age range. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how these players who have never really been able to win before uh, or be able to reach the final, it's going to be interesting to see how they respond. And uh, it's, that's going to be the key takeaway uh, for these players. So... 
Yeah, really excited for it. Uh, really enthused by it. And um, without no further ado, uh, let's get into the semifinal matches that transpired on Saturday. So if you guys don't know, there are two semifinal matches that happened on Saturday. Opelka, Sitsubas, John Isner versus Daniel Medvedev. We'll obviously get into the better of the two matches. Uh, Riley Opelka beat Stefano Sitsubas 6-2. Uh, sorry, not 6-2. 6-7. Uh, 2-7 two, uh, two was the uh, score for the tiebreaker. 7-6, 7-4 was the score for the tiebreaker. 6-4. So 6-7, 7-6, 6-4, Riley Opelka beats Stefano Sitsipas. And this is one of those matches where you would be able to win based off your first serve. Stefano Sitsipas really had a hard time with Opelka's first serve. Just to give you the numbers here, 17 aces, 77, uh, 77, percentage win, uh, 77% win percentage on first serve, 73% of first serves going in. Amazing. Like that is those those three stats in general were amazing, are amazing. Like seventeen aces in a best out of three, unheard of. Like that is one of the most. If there's ever a takeaway for a match, it's serving and the importance to be able to return serve, which Stefano Sitsipas traditionally does not have a good time with. Right? You see, we've seen the uh, John Isner match. Uh, with Stefano Sitsipas in the French Open. We've seen times where he does get flimsy near the baseline, and when he's trying to return serve, there are times where he's just not able to get it in play, and more oftentimes not able to dictate or really understand where the serve will be, whether it's a wide serve or a body serve. And that's something that Stefano Sitsipas does have a little bit of a hard time on. Obviously, you know, he is one of the best players of this generation. I think it's very, very important to at least discuss that. Um, but more importantly, uh, and I think it's something that should be at least pointed out, returning serve is not of Stefano Sitsipas' forte. And Matt Rackett, of, uh, or Matthew Willis of Matt Rackett on Twitter, go check him out, uh, really uh, highlighted uh, throughout the match. So go check out Matt, uh, Matthew Willis from Matt Rackett. Uh, he does a really good job sort of understanding the game and understanding the ins and outs of the game like no other person uh, on Twitter. So go check him out on Twitter. Um, and again, you know, there are several ground strokes uh, between Opelka and Sitsipas, mostly on uh, mostly on Sitsipas, where he just clearly just shanked it. You know, there were times where it felt like shanker. Uh, <laughs> by the way, um, you know, I wish Roger Federer a speedy recovery. So just want to say that uh, I know he's had some in- uh, he has an injury now. He's not able to play the U.S. Open. So um, you know, obviously, um, my uh, I want I want to wish Roger Federer a speedy recovery. But heading back into this match, there were times where he just shanked it on ground strokes. And, you know, there were times where he'd go into the stands, where there were times where he'd just go 100 feet high and just bounce uh, as the point, as they were getting ready for the next point. Uh, it was not good for Stefano Sitsipas in terms of being able to control his ground strokes. And um, that's something that he has to work on and rectify uh, as he heads into the, into the Cincinnati Open, as he heads into the U.S. Open. Um, because that's going to be a very big factor uh, heading into these next few um, tournaments for Stefano Sitsipas. And if you see Sitsipas win in the first set, it was great that he's able to duke it out and whatnot and have rallies that swayed mostly in his direction. But after that first set, it was mainly Opelka. And that tiebreaker was the catalyst for something even greater 
for Opelka, which is, be, which is to be able to beat Sitsipas in a more decided way in that third set. Even though it was 6-4, even though it, it did feel like it was a little bit like like first and second sets. Rewatch it, it was not. It was from that from the from from the start of that third set, it was mostly Opelka. And that is something that he definitely rectified and he definitely chose to improve on. And to be able to see Opelka be able to beat Sitsipas, it just shows you that, you know, these players that are within the current gen, um, while they do, uh, while they are successful against other players, their similar age range, they're also not indestructible. You know, they are also malleable. They're also, no, I wouldn't say malleable, that's the wrong word to use. They're also, they also can be beaten. And they also do have weaknesses, and I do think it's important to at least acknowledge their weaknesses uh, and the way they lose, uh, because that gives you a good indication as to how other players can succeed and can do well against these players that we've been accustomed to hearing as these later sets and rounds go on. So I, I think that's a very important thing to at least get into, is just the importance of just being able to be able to beat them, you know, and, um, you know, definitely Opelka was able to show that uh, in this match against Sitsipas, you know, and, you know, out of the two matches, uh, this was definitely one of the more interesting matches uh, that did transpire uh, with the semifinal matches that happened on Saturday. Um, you know, I mean, when you look at those tiebreakers, uh, it, it's definitely one of those things where Opelka was just, you know, even though he lost in that first set, you, you saw, you saw the gear switching in his mind. You saw the way that he was able to sort of make adjustments uh, in that second set that would ultimately make him win. That could ultimately make him uh, succeed. You know, you saw him thinking and tinkering with his play so that he could be able to get the upper hand on Stefano Tsitsipas, be able to get the high ground on Stefano Tsitsipas. And when you have a player like that, you know, when you have a person that's able to make adjustments mid-game and and be able to see where he's going wrong, I think that's a very, very admirable trait and more importantly, something that all tennis players should have. And, you know, that's something that a lot of tennis players struggle with. You know, I mean, you know, I, I think we've sort of been accustomed based on the big three that everybody sort of makes adjustments and sort of, it sort of trickles down to... Uh, lesser known players on the circuit. Uh, but if you look at the circuit in general, it, it's not like that whatsoever. There are times where people are unable to uh, improve on their mistakes. There are times where players are not, not able to identify what's wrong with their play. There are times where players are just too stubborn to really change and too hesitant to adapt to the new landscape. And, you know, Riley Opelka is the exception to that. And uh, congrats to Riley Opelka on the win. Obviously, he did lose in the Rogers Cup final, but still being able to beat against Sitsipas, uh, that's that's amazing. You know, that's an amazing, amazing thing. And um, yeah, I'm just so so excited to see uh, what is next for Opelka. You know, I mean, I, I think this is one of those mat. This is one of those times where I'm like, you know, even though Sitsipas lost, you can just imagine, you can still tell he's going to be able to succeeding at the u.s open you know i think it's one of those things where you can tell that he's, he's going to have a pretty good u.s open and um 
you know, I'm just happy to see the results of the Rogers Cup. I'm just so blown away by like just how great tennis is at this moment. You know, there are times where you watch it. You know, don't get me wrong. There are times where you watch it where, it, you know, it could be better. You know, but the Rogers Cup, like every year, is just amazing to watch. It, it really is. It, it's one of the be- It's one of my favorite tournaments of the year, and uh, matches like this really showcase that. Uh, now, in terms of matches that don't really showcase that, I would definitely say John is nervous as Daniil Medvedev. Uh, <laughs> sorry to put a little bit of a damper on that note, but uh, John Isner uh, played Daniil Medvedev on Saturday and beat. Uh, actually, no, he did not beat Daniil Medvedev. What am I saying? Daniil Medvedev beat John Isner six two six two straight sets. Uh, more or less, it was the same match. It was the same set for each match. Uh, and it was basically the opposite of what I was saying with Riley Opelka in terms of making adjustments because Daniel Medvedev is one of those players that, while I do like, uh, is not one of those in- individuals that can make adjustments and can uh, alter his play to better adapt to the situation. When you have John Isner, you know what you're getting into. You're going to have great first serves, uh, serve and volley type situation, uh, a lot of errors near the baseline and very sluggish in terms of footwork and being able to get from one side of the baseline to the other. And while he is tall, while he's able to sort of cover the area uh, with his height, not so much with, with his footwork. And Daniil Medvedev is one of those players that, as I've said before, is very tactical and he's very consistent near the baseline. And when you have that, more often than not, uh, the person who's more consistent at the baseline will win. You know, it reminds me of Andy Murray and John Isner. And, you know, there was, I remember seeing this indoor court tennis tournament between the two. And Andy Murray hit this incredible lob uh, that got John Isner away from the baseline back, uh, got him away from the net back to the baseline. And Andy Murray was just able to get the point because of it. And, you know, that had that was a very similar situation as to what we saw from Daniel from Daniel Medvedev. You know, Medvedev had 11 aces to John Isner's four, which is something that we haven't really seen John Isner do, right? I mean, when you think of John Isner, you know, he has incredible first serves, one of the best of, of the ATP circuit, but he just wasn't able to bring it in this match. And overall, I, I am seeing a little bit of a regression in terms of what we've been accustomed to seeing Isner do well in. Uh, which is his first serve, and which is his ability to go to near the net, and Neil Medvedev was just able to ha- was just able to succeed on that endeavor, and was able to sh- uh, uh, better what John is what John Isner does best, and uh, that's a very very sort of morbid thing to say, but it is the the correct thing to say. Uh, Neil Medvedev was just amazing in this match, and. To say otherwise would be not living in the reality of this situation. <clears throat> sorry, sorry for the burp. Um, I, I just had to burp there. Um, you know, again, he broke Isner four times in this match. Unheard of. Like it, it's crazy. Uh, I I would not expect somebody to break Isner that many times. Uh, because again, you have to realize John Isner is a great serve and volley type of individual. And more importantly, when he does serve, um, it usually goes his way because I don't think people realize 
the serve is a very, very important tool to use because it's the one that you have the most control over. You know, you have the ability to dictate that ball toss. You have the ability to dictate whether or not you wanted to have it a body serve or a wide serve. And when you have Daniil Medvedev be able to break Isner four times, it it does seem like an Isner that we haven't been seeing before. And I'm not saying it's a concern, but it's something that you should be thinking of. It's something that should be at the back of your mind. And when you're able to see that in real time and not make adjustments, I think you're going to see an Isner that more or less is the same Isner that we've been seeing. You know, like, I don't think this is a person that's going to be quick to adapt to the new environment or to players that may have a different style than him or a style that he may not be prone to be able to see. And, you know, John Isner, while he is a good player, uh, this is one of those matches where you could have, where you saw the difference between these two players and their just and their overall mentality heading into this match. And Neil Medvedev able to beat him in straight sets and gain the upper hand, be able to reach the Rogers Cup final and win the Rogers Cup final as well. Uh, I think I, I tweeted out on Saturday. Congrats to uh, congrats to today's winner and Rogers Cup winner uh, Daniil Medvedev. For on winning an impressive match against John Isner, uh, I, I think I, I think I predicted as well as many other people that Daniil Medvedev would be able to win the Rogers Cup on Sunday, um, on Twitter on Saturday, uh, by Sunday or whatever. You know what I'm saying? On on Saturday, people would like understand that he would win uh, come Sunday. So, you know, it, it's it's great to see uh, both of these players because it, it gives you a very contrasting style in terms of their tennis play and I, I think that's a very very interesting thing uh, to at least uh, identify or, or address because man oh man like it, it yeah it, it's to see their two styles complement one another uh, it's very rare that you see that on the circuit so yeah it's one of those matches where Medvedev was going to win he won and um, overall nothing much to say about this match other than uh Nice, nice win for Medvedev. All right, so I think I'm, I think I'm good with tennis topics for today. Obviously, the Cincinnati Cincinnati Open started yesterday. Today, uh, I'm filming this on a Monday, uh, and uh, as you can tell, the biggest story outside of tennis was definitely uh, American involvement in Afghanistan and just the Taliban takeover of Kabul. So, if you guys don't know. Very, very sad story. Uh, the Taliban have now taken over Afghanistan. Uh, this was announced as Joe Biden wanted to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. And as a result of this, the Taliban have taken over many, many places in Afghanistan, including Kabul, the sort of capital of it. And in overall, it's a sad situation. Um, you know, the Kabul was once a U.S. territory, and now because of U.S. withdrawal, now it's just a hotspot for uh, anarchy, essentially, for terrorism, for, uh, essentially. And, you know, it's hurting a lot of women and children in the area. Um, it's now, basically, they replaced a U.S. government with a more religious, more sort of fundamentalist, Islamic fundamentalist government uh, that's sort of prone to, you know, sort of go after women and children in the area. And again, it's just a sad, sad situation uh, throughout 
you know, the Afghanistan president, Ashraf Ghani, has decided to flee the country as a result of it. So uh, very interesting as to why he would flee the country as the U.S. would flee the, uh, would flee the country. Very, very interesting. I'm not so sure. I'm not saying that it's a puppet government. You know, maybe it is, maybe it's not, who knows. Uh, but, you know, it's just a sad situation through, uh, regardless of, of where you are politically. And people from across the political spectrum are mad. Uh, Donald Trump issued a letter saying that this was dumb of, of Joe Biden to do it this way. He would have pulled out in a different way, which Donald Trump pulling out, that's unheard of. Uh, Liz Cheney is mad that her father's war is ending. Obviously, why, would, why wouldn't she be mad? I mean, that's her father's child. Uh, R forward slash neoliberal is mad uh, because they want infinite war and indefinite war. Neoliberals on Twitter are mad. And when I, when I say neoliberals, I just mean liberals on Twitter are mad. They want indefinite war and indefinite U.S. involvement in that area. And this is just my overall opinion about this situation unfolding. Everyone knew that the withdrawal of troops in Afghanistan would not be pretty. It would not be pretty. Whoever it would be, whether it would be Obama, whether it be Trump, whether it be Biden, everyone knew that the situation of being able to withdraw troops from the area would not be easy. And this is one of those situations that will be very eye-opening for a lot of individuals. A lot of individuals. And it will have a lot of people skeptical as to why we entered this war in the first place. Right? This is one of those situations where you watch and you're like, okay, why are we truly in Afghanistan? Are we there to spread democracy? Because if we, if we were there to spread democracy, we did a horrible job at it. And honestly, shame on everybody who graduated from these, you know, from these expensive colleges that you know majored in security studies and you know all these you know sort of skeptical majors that are sort of loosely affiliated with the cia i'm not going to get too much into it you know the the harvards and john johns hopkins and the you know all the uh, ivy league schools that you know have these majors that are sort of loosely related to government you know very skeptical uh and, and who have made policy decisions that better defense contractors that better the Raytheons and Northrop Grumman's and the Lockheed Martins. You know, this is an indictment on those individuals who put your children at war and decide to better their MO in terms of being able to make money. You know, when Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address mentioned the military industrial complex, he was right because war is a racket. War is a profit for this country. That is how we make our profit. That's how the state makes their profit is, you know, through having, you know, the best military equipment and being able to sell our arms and, and, you know, be able to invade areas for natural resources. And that is something that a lot of people need to realize is that the reason why we were in Afghanistan was not for spreading democracy, but for increasing our budget, you know, increasing our our ability to make money. You know, when we, when you see the poppy fields that are in Afghanistan, when you see the opium that's being shipped within our country, when you see the natural resources that, that, that they have in terms of natural gas, in terms of oil, in terms of lithium, you know, all of that is a cause of concern, is a cause of concern and something that should be at least discussed because that's one of the main reasons why we went to Afghanistan. You know, if you want to see U.S. involvement 
just know where natural resources are located. Like, understand that if you want to know where America will go next, understand what natural sources, what natural resources we need. You know, right now it may be oil. In 30, 40 years, it's probably going to be water. So just be wary of that. You know, understand that, you know, this is one of the main reasons of American imperialism is because of the fact that we need to have, you know, resources. And, you know, that's what this country is made out of, you know. So understand that that is the main reason why we went into these countries. You know, it was not to fight terror. It was not to fight you know, Osama bin Laden, because if we wanted to, if we wanted to end it, we would have ended 10 years ago. I mean, that's when Osama bin Laden was uh, put to death, you know, like 10 years ago, you know, so again, like understand that, you know, this is going to be a very eye opening experience for a lot of people, because it shows the gross ineptitude of those in power, and where their responsibilities lie. And, you know, I, I just feel bad for everybody, for every family who put their child in this war. I feel bad for every family that had their child shot and killed in the line of duty in, in terms of protecting for this country, in terms of protecting this country, because I, I can't fathom, you know, just how diabolical and, and cynical you have to, not cynical, but more importantly, just how evil you have to be to, you know, persuade people that they're fighting to stop terrorism when in reality they're just fighting for drug trafficking and and you know obviously two things can be true right you can hate on the uh, on the taliban for what they're doing in afghanistan because obviously the taliban are a very evil organization you know no doubt about it make no mistake about it they are very very evil but you can also go after the american government as well uh for prolonging this war that should not have been prolonged and shouldn't have shouldn't even have been started in the first place you know so you know, I mean, it's it's just dumb, and you know, I'm not get, I'm not going to give Joe Biden his credit. I'm sorry, I'm not going to give Joe Biden his credit. He's a member of the establishment, and he actually voted yes on the war when he was senator, and he was one of the main proponents behind the Iraq War, a war that shouldn't even be be happening in the first place. You know, I mean, Iraq had no point. I mean, Iraq was no, was no had no responsibility for 9/11. Why did we go to Iraq? You know, like that, like again, you have to realize that it's mostly for natural resources, you know. So, and and you know, being able to understand, you know, you know, ship drugs in and you know, you know, exploit, you know, the population that we have right there here for like cheap labor. Again, there are many different parts to it, you know, and the whole thing is convoluted. And you know, that's just one of the main reasons as to why. But uh, again, I'm not going to give Joe Biden his credit, you know, because at the same time, he's the person that propagated these wars. He's the main person that, you know, was very vocal with his pro-war positions and actually went after and lambasted anti-war candidates during the primaries of 2008. You know, I mean, he went after Dennis Kucinich. He went after a lot of people that were anti-war. I mean, Obama at one point was anti-war, and then he flipped over to help out the city groups of the world and the Goldman Sachs of the world. So, I'm not going to give uh, Joe Biden his credit because he's a member of the establishment and the establishment has been in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. So, yeah, it's just an overall situation. I don't know what's going to be the future for Afghanistan. It's going to be a failed state. You know, it's going to be North Vietnam all over again. And, you know, I, I, my, my heart goes out to all the people there um, because, you know, they should not be going through this. You know, I mean, if we're going to spread democracy... This is not how we're going to spread democracy. 
you know like like we spend so much money trillions and trillions of dollars to spread democracy and this is the result after 20 years of that so congrats to everybody in the u.s government for sending our children to uh, to export democracy uh and as a result of it not only having a failed government and a failed state in afghanistan but having hundreds of thousands of people being killed in line of duty trying to protect that so hats off to you yeah it's just a sad situation uh you know and i'm very very i'm i'm not i'm not happy uh talking about this because it, it's very sad you know it, it in my like when you think about what the women are going through there it, it's it's horrible uh when you think about the children and what they're going through it's horrible uh but more importantly when it comes to our own men and women and what they've had to sacrifice um, for a war that was mainly for stripping a country of natural resources it, it, nothing good happens nothing good happens so all right so let's get into um um news about Rand paul so last week i titled my episode ain Rand paul ryan and i discussed Rand paul's youtube become being restricted and i was very supportive of Rand paul um because of you know I, I just don't think censorship works i think we need to listen to uh people's opinions regardless of whether or not we agree with them i think it, it creates a more cohesive society a more collective society a society that's keen on listening instead of just talking 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 you know and and you know being able to be empathetic or sympathetic to their situations as well uh i think all of that i think that video still holds up uh but it was reported that Rand paul's wife uh bought stock before the COVID pandemic uh they had like a briefing about it that COVID was going to happen and a lot of people including nancy pelosi decided to either buy stock or sell stock uh because of what they heard about COVID and you know the threat that it played that's gonna that it's gonna play uh in america so apparently uh kelly paul i think her name is Rand paul's wife uh decided to buy gilead stock and if you guys don't know, Gilead is the company that makes remdesivir. And if you guys don't know remdesivir, it's basically the life-saving drug. Uh, Donald Trump was given to it. Um, it's not the vaccine, but it's a life-saving drug that instantly stops you having from having COVID two, three days in, in it. And this is the thing why I am mad at Rand Paul. Rand Paul basically told people not to take the vaccine if you want to take the vaccine, go ahead. If you don't, whatever. Understand it's just a flu. His words, not mine. This is a thing with Rand Paul. He told people that you do not have to take the vaccine. And what he said was that there are alternatives to the vaccine. So what he was basically alluding to was buy remdesivir if you can have it because it's going to help my wife's stock. That is snake oil behavior. Obviously, remdesivir is not snake oil. It's actually very effective. But that is that is the mindset of like an Alex Jones. You know, that's the mindset of, of you know somebody selling you without selling you something without you understanding that it's being sold to you. That is scummy behavior. That is disgusting behavior on Rand Paul. And honestly, the fact that sitting people, that sitting congressmen and women are able to trade stock and buy stock is disgusting. It is a it is something that should be banned from congressmen and women. Whether or not you're in the Senate or House of Representatives, if you are briefed about something, 
And if you're able to make key business decisions because of it, that's disgusting. That is that is that is that is inexcusable behavior. And Rand Paul's wife doing this is honestly like it's just bad. Like it's just bad. And I want to be able to defend him. You know, I want to defend him. I, I still agree with a lot of what I said in that video. I'm not taking that video down because I do agree that his account should not be restricted whatsoever. Um, but what I do think should be restricted are people in office being able to trade and sell stock. The fact that it's still going on in this day is horrible because it's going to come back to bite Rand Paul. If Charles Booker runs for Senate, which it probably does seem like he's going to run for Senate, it will not go his way, Rand Paul, because it's going to be used against him. Charles Booker can easily, easily have a campaign ad set that said, Rand Paul traded stock in office while the most of you were suffering and most of you had, you know, not only mental illness or in, or COVID, but more importantly, anxiety, depression, alcoholism, drug overdoses that were key parts to COVID and definitely skyrocketed during the pandemic. So, and it's a, it's a deal breaker. It is a deal breaker for a lot of people because that's one of the main reasons why Kelly Leffler, Kelly Loeffler lost in her, uh, in her election, in her re-election was because of the fact that her opponent, I think his name is Raphael Warnock, I think his name is, uh, I forgot, but uh, his name is Raphael Warnock, I think, I'm pretty sure. He was able to use that and use that as leverage to gain power in office. And as a result, Kelly Leffler is not in office anymore. And chances are it can happen to Rand Paul as well. So again, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that it's it's one of those things where he should not have done this. He should not have done this. And for me, like, I'm actually kind of lukewarm on Rand Paul. Uh, I used to have a libertarian phase in high school. I actually wanted to uh, vote for Rand Paul uh, in the 2016 election. Obviously, like, um, I, it's cringy when I think what I thought about in, like, uh, in, like, high school. You know, I was big into Sam Harris, Bill Maher. Uh, it's weird to see how like I've changed over the years and just how cringy I was as a high schooler. Uh, but I was big into Rand Paul and a lot of things that I, I, I believe then I still believe now. I mean, I think we should have a non-interventionist foreign policy. I think we need to pull troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I think we need to stop bombing these countries and stop having regime change in Syria, you know, or, or stop having regime change or a, a potential regime change in Syria. A lot of things that, you know, Rand Paul agrees with. Um, but, you know, when I see this, it's disgusting, it's vile, and I think it should at least be discussed in full detail because overall, this this does not make Rand Paul look good at all. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I just thought I should get that out of the way because um, it's definitely a, a key of concern for Rand Paul. And uh, I'm very, uh, very sad about what transpired, but I'm not surprised because, again, it's a sitting politician, so whatever. Um, just wanted to get that out of the way. All right. Uh, let's get into Kevin Hart versus Don Cheadle. So if you guys don't know, uh, Don Cheadle went on Kevin Hart's show, Heart to Heart, I think. I mean, Kevin Hart is really milking out his last name for a lot of his shows. Straight from the Heart, I think that's his name of the podcast. Heart to Heart, Heartbeat Productions. I mean, he's really milking the last name of his, which, hey, it's your last name. Go for it. Um, so he has a show on Peacock. Uh, where Don Cheadle was invited and Don Cheadle said his age and Kevin was just like, damn, 
<laughs> um, which, and Don Cheadle did not really like. He's like, uh, I, I don't, that reaction was not good. Uh, and he was like, you know, uh, I, I thought you should be more supportive of me. Uh, I'm sure he, he didn't say that specifically, but uh, it definitely did feel like he was slighted by Kevin Hart when he said, damn. And it was just this awkward exchange. Um, I don't really have that much to talk about with this uh, story other than the fact that, um, you know, Kevin Hart, he's he's a comedian. You know, he's he's going to say things that, you know, are meant for a reaction, you know. And I think while I didn't while I don't really find Kevin Hart funny, I did. I, I found his like earlier specials a little bit funny, like I'm a grown little man, seriously funny, uh, laugh at my pain. I thought those specials were pretty good. Um, but overall, it's one of those things where he's a very sort of corporate person, you know, and, you know, obviously congrats to Kevin Hart for making fortune. Obviously we live in capitalism. Go make your money, Kevin. Um, but it does feel like, uh, he's acting a lot where it doesn't really feel like it's being natural where he's feeling genuine. Um, and maybe like the Oscars mishap maybe probably added to it, but it, it definitely did feel like ever since like. I don't know, like from 2014, 2015 on, it, it felt like you saw Kevin Hart as like more of a, it felt like Kevin Hart viewed himself more as a brand as opposed to like a comedian. Like there was like a certain switch in him where it felt like he was like a brand in, instead of a comedian. And when you watch his recent special, Don't F This Up, I mean, it wasn't all that, in my opinion, it wasn't that great. You know, he his main joke was calling COVID the vid which I'm like, uh, it's a little too lazy, too cheap. Uh, and more importantly, it shows you like that special really shows you a glimpse as to just how, uh, I wouldn't say hypocritical, but just how not sincere he really is. I mean, he endorses Beyond Meat. He's get, he gets caught, you know, eating a hamburger. Uh, he's a watch collector, doesn't know anything about watches. Um, I mean, Kevin Hart is a very like, he tries to like have this like facade of being a family man, but like we all know he cheats. We all know like I'm I'm not breaking any new information. Like he's a really like he's a serial cheater. Like don't get me wrong. Like he's a he's not what he tries to advertise himself as. You know, a lot of these clean comics, you know, uh, they're not people that uh, are really family friendly. Friendly, if you really think about it. You know, obviously there are exceptions to the rule. Jim Gaffigan is a very good dude, very funny dude. Obviously. Uh, Brian Regan, another person, very good person uh, in terms of clean comics. But there are also clean comics where uh, they don't really have the best image off the comedy club or off the comedy set. You know, I mean, Kevin Hart's one person uh, in terms of a drastic uh, severity in terms of uh, how they're viewed. Bill Cosby, I mean, obviously, he was a clean comic, went after Eddie Murphy for, you know, having bad language. But I mean, Bill Cosby uh went to jail for having over like 60 counts of like rape you know and sexual assault so it, maybe over 60 i'm sure the number is like really high maybe way way more higher than 60 who knows uh but again you know it's one of those things where you know it, it's it's kevin hart you know so i mean i i'm not really that ex uh i'm not i'm really not that uh shocked when i see like him having like you know, weird things happen, you know, because, you know, it, it definitely does feel like he's more of a corporate entity than, say, a comedian, you know, it's, and maybe he's going to apologize for this, who knows, I don't think he should, um, but, um, yeah, I'm sure, like, Kevin Hart and Don Cheadle are fine, 
Uh, I honestly thought the reaction that, that Twitter had was a little bit barbaric. It just felt like a weird, a awkward exchange. It didn't feel like it was that harsh on Kevin Hart. It didn't feel like Kevin Hart was, was being that harsh on Don Cheadle. Uh, it just felt like banter. It felt like two people that you know have talked before and are just hashing out uh, their deepest uh, lukewarm feelings with one for with one another. You know, so yeah, that's just my overall opinion on uh, on this. You know, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a thing. It's a thing, you know, that got people talking. That's the most press Peacock will ever have. Uh, <laughs> I assure you that. Uh, okay. I think that's good. But yeah, I still stand by what I say with, with Kevin Hart. Uh, I think when you once you reach a certain plateau, I think you you, only, you view yourself as a, as a corporate entity and a corporate product. And once you have that, I don't think that bodes well with your comedy. For me, I don't think corporations and comedy can really mix with one another. Because with comedy, and, you know, there are times where it can mix, you know, don't get me wrong, you know. Uh, but I think it has to be from, like, a Netflix or an HBO than, say, like, NBC, you know. It's it's one of those things where, like, you know, in my opinion, like, the corporation that you mix with has to complement your comedy correctly and, and has to understand that you have free leverage in terms of what you can be able to say and what you can't be able to say. You know, when you see a lot of these YouTube specials, you know, Mark Norman, one of them, one of the best specials in the past year, if not the best special in the past year. You know, Andrew Schultz is another one. You know, these comics prove that you don't really need the industry to really succeed. All you need is YouTube and people that are interested in watching you do stand up. And as long as you have that, then you have everything. So and I think that's where I would prefer to be. You know, for a lot of people, they want to be on they want to have a sitcom. They want they want to be able to have other people do their work. For me, like I val I find value with this. And honestly, if I had a conversation with Don Cheadle, which I wouldn't, uh, but if I did, it would go a lot more smoother because it fe- it feels like Kevin Hart has ulterior motives to this show than just sitting down with Don Cheadle. You know, it's very easy when you see an artificial conversation play out versus a more natural one. When I hear a natural conversation, it's Rogan and Elon Musk. When I hear a natural conversation, it's Rogan and Kanye. When I hear a natural conversation, it's Rogan and some acclaimed scientists. It's Rogan and some comedian. You know, that's what I think of when I hear of a conversation. You know, when I hear of a natural conversation, I think of a truck driver and Theo Vaughn. You know, I think the uh, television shows you just how artificial everything is. And this is a definitely an artificial environment for both of these people. So, yeah. Anyways. That's where I'll start. Well, that's where I'll end off for today. And in terms of my weekly pick, this is where I usually end off. Uh, I usually recommend a movie, a film. Uh, movies and films are the same thing. A film, a book, uh, yeah, a piece of art, uh, album that I usually recommend each and every week. This week, as you can probably tell, I'm going to be recommending Machine Gun Kelly's Paper Cuts. Uh, it was released on by Lyrical Lemonade on Thursday. Great, great music video for it. Um, and yes, it is trash. I wanted I wanted to say this. Yes, it is very trash. And as a person that goes after comic book movies, yes, I understand I'm being a bit hypocritical. But it's my trash, and I love my trash. So Machine Gun Kelly's Paper Cuts. It's very easy to hate on MGK. But since he switched to this style of pop punk, he's been releasing fire. And this is one of my favorite songs of his. I truly mean it by, like, but in my heart, this is one of my favorite songs of his. Um, there's a lot of pop punk cliches, you know, like, uh, you know, like him, like going after 
people for ostracizing him and you know being being a social pariah and whatnot and you know and uh how people don't get him you know so obviously there are cliches splattered throughout the song um but the amount of passion he has and how the the song ties together with travis barker on the drums and him just having just this utmost passion for what he's doing it's just amazing and the way that this song concludes it just it's just chef's kiss it's just amazing and it is a song that does remind me a lot about the pixies whereas my mind i'm so i'm sure pixies are getting a lot of royalties for the song but having said all that it's a great song i love it fantana will probably hate it but who cares at the end of the day as long as you like the music or as long as i like the music that's all that matters to me um and paper cuts is one of those uh songs that it's just amazing it's just amazing to see uh music video video was shot amazingly and more importantly the song is amazing as well it's it's i use the song i use the word amazing a lot but it's a great song and you all should go check it out and i'm excited for borns with horns Having said all that, I'm getting, you know, close to time on here. But guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, and click the bell icon for notifications down below. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, And also, if you're listening on WhatsApp or if you're on WhatsApp, make sure you spread the word on WhatsApp as well. So guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, On Thursday, I'll be talking about the Cincinnati Open and things that are happening in our political and societal realm as well. And um, I know I'm speaking very fast. I'm very sorry about that. But uh, yeah, that's what I'll be talking about Thursday. So guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Peace. See y'all.